0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Now, Psalm 72 is all about the blessing that comes to God's people because of their righteous and just King. It says God's blessing comes to His people through their righteous and just king. The king, as the representative of his people, secured or lost God's blessing to the people insofar as they worshipped him, honored him, and served him, and loved him, and kept his law. They secured or they lost God's blessing for the people as long as they were administrators of righteousness or justice in their kingdoms. Now, King David was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. And King Solomon was a good king, at least for the first part of his reign. He, 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 was, he asked for wisdom from God. God said, what is it you want from me? And Solomon said, give me wisdom. If I'm to be king, I will need wisdom. And God said, I will give you what you've asked for. I'll give you wisdom. And because you've asked for wisdom, I'll even give you something for which you didn't ask. I'll give you riches. So, Solomon was a man of immense wisdom and immense riches, immense wealth. And, and God allowed Solomon to even build the temple for him in Jerusalem, the temple that symbolized God's dwelling place, where he would be worshiped by his people in their presence. So, it was that, this, that Solomon's reign was a time that was marked by God's presence and great prosperity for God's people. These were the blessings that were brought to God's people through and by the King. But neither David nor Solomon were completely righteous. We know the story. Neither David nor Solomon were completely just. Both disobeyed God's law. Both were deeply sinful in the same ways that both you and I are sinful through and through. For them and for us, sin wasn't merely present in their actions or their words, It was embedded into every fiber of their being. David in Psalm 51 asked God to create in him a new heart. A request that we ourselves will ask of God because our hearts are corrupt. They're full of sin. So David and Solomon could never be the fully righteous and just king they could never be the fully righteous and just representative of the people before God. And even if they could, even if they could be completely righteous, even if they could be completely just, their righteousness and their justice would only last as long as their lifetimes. Their reigns were limited to their lifespans. They could not be an eternal king. So it was that David and Solomon were merely types and shadows of King Jesus. The eternal King. King Jesus, the completely righteous, the completely just King, who secures blessing for God's people by His own blood. The King who defends His people from their enemy by defeating their enemy once and for all. Now, that's Psalm 72. And what does that have to do with Psalm 127? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they have the same author, Solomon, And while Solomon in Psalm 127 wrote on a different theme than he did in Psalm 72, both psalms have within them the same heart. Not always, but often, the middle part of a psalm is its heart. It is the moral of the story. It is the idea that the psalm is built around. And it's the idea that the psalm is meant to convey. In the middle of Psalm 127, is the end of verse 2. Now, we're going to read Psalm 127 together in just a moment. It's not going to take very long. It's a pretty short psalm. But if you'd bear with me and look at the end of verse 2, look at the last clause in verse 2, where we read, He that is the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Now, that phrase, his beloved, is a bit of a clever reference Solomon is actually making to himself He's referencing himself, the king, the representative of God's people as the Lord's beloved. After all, that was actually the name that God gave to Solomon at his birth. David and his wife named their son Solomon. But we learn in 2 Samuel that God actually called his name Jedidiah, which is the Hebrew name that means beloved of the Lord. His name was the Lord's beloved. And so it is that Psalm 127 is about the King and how God's blessing of rest was given to the people because of and through the King, their representative, their royal figurehead. That should mean something for us today. Psalm 127 is also one of the 15 songs of ascents. You'll see that Psalms 120 to 134 have below them this inscription. They say, a song of ascents. Because these were the songs that God's people would sing as they ascended the hill or the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. God's people would go to Jerusalem, they would make a pilgrimage multiple times throughout their year to celebrate various feasts. And these feasts were tangible reminders of God and celebrations of God's acts of salvation, and of His keeping of His covenant promises and His steadfast love. And as God's people would go to Jerusalem and begin their ascent up the hill to the Jerusalem, it was customary to sing or to chant or to use these songs, recite these 15 songs in some way to prepare their hearts to worship God. So in keeping with what I've already said about the middle of a psalm being its heart, being its main idea, it is not without meaning that Psalm 127 is the middle of the songs of ascents. And it's not without meaning that the middle of the middle is about the king. As God's people were ascending the hill up to Jerusalem, they as they were preparing their hearts to go and worship God, to remember His acts of salvation, to celebrate His steadfast love, they were singing the songs of the king. They knew, Solomon knew, that for God's people to receive God's blessing, they would need a perfectly righteous perfectly just, sinless and obedient, eternal king. And these psalms are about that king. These psalms are all about Jesus. You see, we're tempted to look for ourselves first in the Bible. We're tempted to see where we might fit into the story, and that's especially true with this wisdom literature that we're about to read. It's easy to jump to, what does this say about me? Or what does this tell me to do? But the problem with that is that when we look first for ourselves in the Bible, we miss Jesus. We must first see Jesus in order to see ourselves the way that God sees us. We must first see what Jesus did before asking ourselves what we might do in light of His love and mercy. These are the songs of the King. So with that, let's read together Psalm 127 a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil for He gives to His beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's Word. Let's go to Him in prayer that this wisdom which we have read would be imparted and imputed to us by grace through faith in Jesus. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth truth that we find in it. We thank You for Your love for us that is shown for us in Jesus. We thank You that Your Word is the pathway to wisdom and life. And we thank You that Jesus has accomplished this life for us, that we may have His righteousness. God, we thank You for all of these blessings that we've enjoyed, all of your the ways You've gathered us together this morning to know You, to sing about You, and to read about You. Be with us, we pray, this morning as we study Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. What do we do with wisdom literature? I'll be transparent with you. I'm personally conflicted by and around wisdom literature. I'll admit it, I have a complicated relationship with things like self-help books, management publications, leadership podcasts, whatever form such content takes. Not that any of these things are bad. I need all the help I can get. I need all the wisdom I can get. My life bears all of the hallmarks of anxious toil and I would love to know some practical tools or some principles that, hey, if I just worked a little harder at them, uh, if I just believed a little bit more, if I was a little bit better at them, then maybe I could rid myself of my anxiety or at the very least I could see myself through it. But you see the irony of that statement. You see the conflict. Still, however, maybe you're a little bit like me. At first, looking to wisdom for self-betterment seems attainable. It seems reasonable. It seems like the right thing to do. And maybe for a while, for lucky, if we, we tried harder and we did a little better. But then, as if we're surprised by it, each and every time we fail. And the good advice of the wisdom we sought to apply in our lives simply becomes another landmark on the road of our failures. And so I ask again the question, what do we do with wisdom literature? What do we do with wisdom literature that we find in the Bible? Is wisdom literature a problem? Is it only full of helpful suggestions for behavior modification? Is it merely good advice? And what does that mean for a church that preaches and teaches the good news of Jesus' righteous law-keeping on our behalf? His becoming a curse for us, for our our unrighteousness. What are we to make of wisdom literature? Well, at this point, I understand if what I'm saying is somewhat shocking to you, if it's surprising to you. I understand if what I'm sharing is is somewhat disappointing or distressing to you. I get it if you would question what business I have preaching and teaching on wisdom literature if this is how I really feel about it. But hear me out. Because until we understand what biblical wisdom literature is, or better yet, who wisdom literature is about, we will be crushed under the weight of the demands of wisdom. You've felt this. You've experienced this. Whether in your work or in your studies or in your relationships, you have felt the burden of missing the mark. Of trying and failing. Of trying harder and failing yet again. And perhaps where this has hurt the worst has been in your attempts to be righteous. To stop sinning. We read Psalm 127 and we think to ourselves, "Okay." I will not do my work without the Lord. Stop doing that. I will not work out of my own selfish ambition. Not going to do that anymore. Mm-mm. I will will forward humbly and happily apply myself to my work solely and wholly for God's glory alone. Not my idolatry, not my covetousness, not my pride. No, only for God's glory. I won't even be anxious about my life. And then life happens. And our sin is exposed. And we get discouraged until we understand that Jesus became for us wisdom personified. That when He said, it is finished, He meant all of it. Unless wisdom is perfectly personified by Jesus and its actions, the actions of wisdom, are accomplished for me by Jesus, and unless by grace I can have His record of perfect righteousness, wisdom is in and of itself, for me, hopeless. And so it is that we must first see Jesus in this psalm before we see ourselves. After all, what is wisdom? How does the Bible define wisdom? Well, in my studies, it seems, I found a good shorthand for how the Bible defines wisdom. Wisdom, as it is defined by the Bible, is life with God for the glory of God. You can write that down, life with God for the glory of God. That's how the Bible defines wisdom. But as far as I know, no one, not even the wisest man that ever lived, not even King Solomon himself, perfectly lived life with God for the glory of God, except for Jesus. And so because Jesus lived life with God for the glory of God, and in so doing became wisdom personified, we can repent of our anxious toil and receive God's blessings of grace for salvation and new life. And the blessed rest of God's beloved can belong to us when we belong to Jesus. Jesus Himself said so. His ministry was a call to weak and weary sinners and just like you and me, and the self-righteous just like you and me to come and rest. Jesus said, Come to Me, all who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well? If you don't know the story, she wasn't exactly living life with God for the glory of God. She was hiding her sins away, her sin of adultery, and and hoping no one would notice it by, by doing her physical labor, going to a well, drawing water from a well, and carrying it all the way back to her house in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. She went to the well thinking no one would be there, and up until this point, no one had, but today she met Jesus. She was hoping to be unseen, and thus far she'd been successful in her hiding, but now Jesus is there. She'd been successful to this point and it was working out okay for her, but wow, was she tired? And who wouldn't be tired with that kind of a double life and all the work that she was going through to keep it up? Maybe her story resonates with you. Maybe you think you're keeping your sin a secret and maybe that's working okay. Maybe you're hoping no one will notice your isolation or your sin, and thus far, it seems to you no one really has. But isn't it tiresome? You're weary of pretending? Weary of keeping up appearances? Jesus said to the woman, so weary from coming to the well in the heat of the day each day, so weary of living with her secrets, He said to the woman, if you would have asked Me, I would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give Him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. We say, Jesus, You mean that if I come to You, I can stop hiding? Jesus, You mean to tell me that if I ask You for, to provide for me the thing that I'm looking for everywhere but from You, whether that's approval, sig- security, significance, Jesus, You will give me that an in internal supply? Oh, that we would say, just like the woman said, give me this water. Oh, that we would repent of our anxious toil, our vain attempts to save ourselves when we see that everything God requires of us has been provided for us in Jesus. If you think you can't meet the demands of wisdom on your own strength and by your own striving, you're right. But to quote pastor and seminary professor Jack Miller, cheer up. You are a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. This is true for you when your faith is in the person and work of Jesus. He lived life with God for the glory of God. He became wisdom personified, and because of this, we can read wisdom literature without being crushed by its demands. So with that in mind, let's look further into this psalm to learn first those things that wisdom does not say. Second, what wisdom says. And third, be reminded again who wisdom is. So first, what wisdom says. Wisdom does, or what wisdom does not say. Wisdom does not say labor and watchfulness are themselves vanity. Hard work is not in and of itself vanity. Verses 1 and 2 do not say that building a house is work done in vain. Nor do they say watching over a city is staying awake in vain. They don't say rising up early and going late to rest is vanity, because it's not. But doing any of those things apart from the Lord is. Doing any of those things for your own selfish ambition is. The psalmist, though, does not disparage hard work. After all, if God is the Creator and we are made in His image, when we create in ways that honor His design for life in this world, we reflect His character and His nature. Wisdom does not say that labor and watchfulness are themselves vanity, but it does say that work done without the Lord is. So I will say more on that, what wisdom actually does say about work done without the Lord later. But here's another thing that wisdom does not say. Wisdom does not say that God will do our work for us. Maybe you're a little bit like me, one of those people like me who are always looking for a loophole, always looking for a way out, trying to get out of things. A wrong reading of the text would be to say, if God will build the house and watch over the city while he lets me get a little sleep because I love him and he loves me, then I'll just let him do it. In other words, if God can do the work without me, then why try at all? Wisdom does not say that. Foolishness says that. Spurgeon said, if God works in me to will and to do of his good pleasure, then the natural result is that I must work out what he has worked in. It would be foolish to think that God himself will do for you the very work that he has set before you. The work that He's prepared you and enabled you to do by giving you your talents, by placing you where you are with the people in your spheres of influence, by giving you your hands and your feet and your mind, by surrounding you with people and a creation that is well-suited to receive your attention. You know, it's interesting. In in our solar system and in all of the galaxies, there's just one place that is habitable for you and me, and it's here. We're well-suited to do work here. Is there... It would be foolish to think God would take away from you the opportunity to partake in caring for His creation. Wisdom does not say that God will do our work for us, whether that's the work of our hands or the work of our hearts. We spent a lot of time this morning honing in on the truth of the gospel, that you and I are not saved because of what we have done or what we can do, but because instead of the person and work of Jesus alone. But here's a question for you. Is there work yet for me and you to do in recognizing our need for Jesus or in confessing our need? Is there work for you and me to do in repenting of our self-righteousness, in repenting of our selfishness and our sinfulness? Repentance is the action of turning away from sin, hating it more and more, and turning to Jesus, loving Him, treasuring Him, serving Him, and it is the grace of God that reveals to you and me our need for turning, but God calls you and me to, in fact, turn. He has called us to repentance. And that is the work of our hearts to which God has called us. Wisdom does not say that God will do our work for us. There is yet work to do with our hands. There is work to do in our homes. There is work to do in our hearts. Now, here's one thing that wisdom doesn't say that I don't know if I need to say a whole lot about, so I'll be brief on this point. But it seems worthwhile addressing in the event anyone would twist God's word to say something it doesn't say. And that is, wisdom does not say God's people must have lots of children. Again, verses 3 and 5 say this, they say, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Behold, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A careful reading of that text reveals there is no command for God's people to have lots of children. Nor does it say that not having children is a way of folly. It simply communicates a truth. It communicates the truth that one benefit of having children is the likelihood that they will care for you and defend you when your strength fails you in your old age. That's the simple truth. And in Solomon's day and for much of human history, having numerous children was actually key for survival. This was true because of the, the, the need for labor on the, in the family business or on the family farm. And it was also true because so few children even survived to adulthood. But that is the simple truth that is being conveyed by the psalmist, that children are a blessing that come from the Lord. We may think they come from us, we call them our offspring, but it is truly God that grants and gives life. And when He does, children bring with them the the benefit of care and company as we need it while we age. So again, wisdom does not say that God's people must have lots of children. I'll make one observation, however, that the psalmist was very purposeful to include the work of parenting as work that is not done in vain. Those who parent children rise up early and go late to rest a lot. It's hard work, and any of the parents in this room can't wait to tell you how hard the work is. And as we saw earlier, as we will return to again later, hard work done with the Lord, trusting in the Lord for the glory of the Lord, is, not, is work that is not done in vain. It is meaningful. It is profitable. It's good. So these are the things, those are the things that wisdom does not say. What then does wisdom say? When we look to this psalm, which is so full of wisdom, how does it describe life with God for the glory of God? Well, first, wisdom says that work without the Lord is vanity. It's meaningless. To work without the Lord has no meaning or purpose. The psalmist uses, this, he uses the words in vain three times in three sentences to describe work done apart from the Lord and for anyone's glory other than God's. What a warning this is against futility and frustration. How we would experience futility and frustration if attempting to work apart from the Lord. In Ecclesiastes, which was also likely written by Solomon, the author describes vanity as a striving after the wind. Nothing could be more useless or silly than chasing the wind. I mean, think about it. If you were to go outside and try to catch the wind, how silly would you look? People would think you lost your mind. But if you do your work on your own strength, for your own glory, you might as well have simply chased the wind. Does it hurt to hear that? I know it hurts to hear that, which is why I'm so glad Jesus fully paid for all of my foolishness and yours. And that by the transforming work of grace, He's working in our hearts. We can stop working for our own glory and instead work for His. Jesus picks up on this theme of futility, working apart from Him in John chapter 15 when He tells the disciples to abide in Him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying the same thing as the psalmist, that working apart from his abiding presence and for his praise is an exercise in futility. But there's another encouraging element here from this wisdom, and it's because, God says, because it says that God is working, and this gives meaning and purpose to our work. If building and watching, apart from God, is building and watching in vain, then the opposite is true. Building and watching with God is not in vain. If we were to rephrase the psalm into the positive, we would see this. Verse 1 would say something like, Those who build the house with the Lord do not labor in vain. Those who watch over the city with the Lord do not stay awake in vain. Verse 2, if we were to restate it, it would say something like, "It is not." In vain to rise up early and go late to rest if you eat the bread of joyful labor. Building and watching with God is not in vain. It has deep meaning and lasting value. This is because as we saw, God has equipped us and invites us to partake in the care of his creation and to minister to the needs of the people around us. And maybe the most pressing need is that everyone everywhere would see the futility in working for his or her own glory. But more than that, that they would see the beauty and the goodness of working for God's glory, so they could experience the blessed rest that comes to us through Jesus. Because ultimately, God invites us to do our work and to rest in the finished work of Jesus. God's sovereignty and His providence is a comfort for the weary. It means that, yes, God requires us to apply ourselves in our work, the work of our hands, that we would apply ourselves again to the work of our hearts, but ultimately, our success isn't up to us. What a comfort that is. Because this is true, we can lay down the burdens of our anxious toil, our work for our own glory, and instead we can rest in the joy of knowing that we are loved because of what Christ has done. After all, He is wisdom personified. He is who wisdom is. No deed ever done by Jesus was vanity. No word ever spoken by Jesus was spoken in vain. His miraculous birth, His sinless life, His atoning death, His victorious resurrection, His glorious ascension, His perfect intercession is entirely unnecessary, yet is entirely consequential for you and me. It's our only hope. Because without Him, there is only anxious toil. He is the Lord's Beloved. And because Jesus is the Lord's beloved, you and I are the Lord's beloved because Jesus belongs to us and we belong to him. And now the bread we eat is no longer the bread of anxious toil, but instead we feast on the bread of life. Just as Jesus told the woman at the well that he had living water to give, that he would give to her an eternal supply of the significance or the security for which she longed, For which she was toiling, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Because Jesus himself was wisdom personified, we can have the rest he gives to his beloved. We can cease our anxious toil. We can turn away from it. We can repent of it and receive instead true rest in the beloved. Finally, Jesus is our true defender in the gate the psalm ends with these words speaking of the blessing of children that because of them he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate the gate is meant to be understood as the courts essentially the psalmist was saying that beyond defending and helping you in your old age your children will your children are able to speak on your behalf if ever your enemies make a charge against you in the courts we see this today to a certain degree when people's children serve as their parents' powers of attorney. Whether for medical purposes or for legal purposes, parents assign to their children powers of attorney with the belief that their children will act on their behalf for their best interests. And while this is a good thing that children can do, what they can't do is intercede for us. They can't plead for us in the most important court we could ever face. They cannot argue for us on our behalf or act on our behalf before the throne of God and before His righteous judgment of our souls. They cannot defend us against the charge of the enemy who says this one is a sinner. Only Jesus can do that. Hebrews 7.25 puts it this way, He that is Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. On their behalf, the author continues, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, unseparate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, for his, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is our defender. He answers the charge of the enemy that we are wicked sinners, undeserving of God's love, by offering up Himself. By living the life we should have lived and dying the death that we deserved. He's our defender. He is wisdom personified. And He is our only hope for a life lived with God for the glory of God. So if you're like me, and you're conflicted by wisdom literature, if you're tired of trying harder to be better, if you've come to the demands of a righteous and wise life and think to yourself, well, great, I've wrecked it. I stand no chance. Again, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. This is true for you in Jesus. Let's pray and thank God together for this beautiful, wonderful truth. God, we thank You that we have a Savior, a Defender, a Redeemer, a Friend in Jesus. We thank You that He advocates for us, that He pleads His own blood for us on our behalf because He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve. We thank You that by faith in Him we receive His record of righteousness. We thank You that this is Your grace for us as we look to Jesus for our salvation. Father, thank You for these words of wisdom. Thank You for providing to us words by which we can live life with You and give You glory. Thank You for the Gospel. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.